really glad that um, Steve and Jess ended with that song, that last part, Give Me Jesus, You Can Have All This World. Um, Kyle, every now and again, Kyle will ask me, what should we name the sermon? What should we title the sermon? And I'll think about whatever the subject was regarding that weekend or that Sunday and text him back, name it this. Or name it that, or do you have any suggestions? So before you even ask, if, if you do ask later, I'm just going to say, I think today's message, and maybe for the next, I don't know how many months, uh, we'll just call it Practical Application. Uh, just, we'll just title it Practical Application. So last week I began a series on the Sermon on the Mountain, uh, in, starting in Matthew 5, going through uh, Matthew 7. And this message, this, this process that we're going to go through is probably going to take several months. Um, last week we looked at the concept of the word blessed and how Jesus began his sermon with eight attributes, uh, starting in Matthew 5, verse 3, eight attributes on how we can be happy, how we can be fulfilled, how can we be fortunate, how can we be well off. And we looked at that word blessed, and I, I found it interesting as I was reading through the eight Beatitudes, and this is why I'm going to call it practical application. I'm looking through the eight Beatitudes that we see in Matthew 5, uh, I believe it's 3 through 10, and it seems like every single Beatitude, every single Beatitude is something that we can consciously attain, that, that we can, through our effort and our resolve, we can attain these attributes. Now, before you go, oh, here we go, it's a work salvation message, it's not. You have to bear with me for the next 30 to 45 minutes to understand where I'm coming from. Um, but I see, I see the, the Matthew chapter 5 passage uh, and these attributes, something, attributes is something that we can actually desire, work towards, um, uh, uh, live our lives in a way that these start to now become who we are. So we're going to start in, in, in 1 Peter, of all places, chapter 2, to give you an example of, what I, of how I'm coming up to my conclusion, if you will, on, on these attributes uh, in the Beatitudes, or the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, Peter writes to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's writing to Christian people. And he says to them in chapter 2, verse 1, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. All of those things that he's saying to put away are, are things that we can actually work on. If we're slandering, we can stop slandering. If we, if we are envious of people, we can actually stop being envious. Uh, we're going to get how in a little bit, but just bear with me. And then it says in verse 2, like newborn infants, long... And I think it's crave in another, uh, another version, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it, by the pure spiritual milk, you may grow up into your salvation or into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So it seems like there's this desire preceding, preceded uh, by ridding yourselves of these things that Peter is telling them to rid themselves of, which is envy and malice and deceit and slander. He's telling you, get rid of these things and crave something better, crave something more. And if you flip over a couple pages in 2 Peter, 
2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 through 7, he says, for this very reason, and anytime I read something in the scriptures that say, for this reason, I have to go back and look at what he's referring to in order for me to have a good understanding, good concept of what he's talking about. He says, for this reason, so the reason that he's about to say what he is about to say is because in verse 3, it says that his divine power, talking about Christ, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Don't spend too much time on that, but verse 4, it says, by which he has granted to us, Christ has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through those precious and very great promises, we may become, become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of the sinful desire. So it's basically saying that Jesus is giving us these things, and because of these things, for this reason, make every effort to supplement, and that word supplement is add, just like a weightlifter supplements or adds certain things to his diet to, to gain muscle mass and to gain weight. He says, for supplement your faith virtue, with virtue knowledge. Knowledge comes through study and comes through observation. It comes through prayer. Um, with knowledge, self-control. That is something we do. And self-control, steadfastness. And steadfastness, godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. He's saying make every effort to supplement your faith with these things. Make an effort towards it. And if we're going to go one step further, we're going to go to Philippians chapter 2. I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 4. And in Philippians chapter 4, in verses 8 through 10, or just let's look at verse 8. No, 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 let's look 8 through 10. Philippians 4, 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. Think about whatever is pure and lovely and commendable and ex excellence and, and when worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, I'm sorry, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So the writer, Paul, is telling the church at Philippi to think about positive things and then put it into practice. That's why I would call this practical application message. Now, I'm going to give you an example of why I believe, and it'd be hard to convince me otherwise, this works and why it's true. About two weeks ago, I got a phone call from a client up in Colburn. They received two feet of snow, and about two weeks prior or a month prior, I went up there and I put in snow fence on his roof because it was coming right down on his porch, and so we put gutters in there, and we put heat tape, and then I put snow fence. Well, I got a phone call. He says, I just got back from Indiana, and the snow fence was laying on the deck. It completely ripped off, and I was frustrated. And I said, I'll be up tomorrow. I can't get up right now. I'll be up tomorrow. I'll fix it. I'll get all the snow off the roof. I'll put the fathead screws in, the bigger screws that you're supposed to put in that. They didn't have them at the store when I went, so I put these other screws thinking it would hold. It didn't hold. So I'm mad at myself. I'm mad that I got to go up there. I've got this high fence or this snow fence I've got to put back on. And I'm just complaining in my head. As soon as my feet hit the floor, I'm not kidding, as soon as my feet hit the floor, I was whining in my head about it. I was angry. I was frustrated. I'm like, I got a million other things I'd rather be doing 
And I'm sitting there brushing my teeth because I got to get going. I said, I'll be there by 9. It's 7.30. And I'm brushing my teeth. I'm getting ready to head out the door. And my brain instantly went to the day before. And I was driving down Redlands Parkway. And I crossed over the Colorado River. And there was this woman without legs from her knees down. And she was doing this, walking down the parkway, and she was stubs, stubs, and pushing her wheelchair like this. My knees are already starting to hurt, guys. She's doing this down the parkway. That's the thought and the image that came into my head. And did God put that image there? I would like to think yes. For the sake of argument, let's just say that God said, son... Remember when I gave you the Holy Spirit? I'm going to put something in your head so you can change your perspective on life. So I'm sitting there and God throws this vision into my head and I went, what is wrong with me? I get to go up into this beautiful countryside. I get to work, which God's given me the ability to do. I get to see snow and breathe the freshest air with no pollution around. And it wasn't five minutes later, I called my son, and my son says, hey, it's snowing down here, we can't work, uh, can I go snowboarding? And I said, no, can you go up to Colburn with me and help me fix the snow fence? He said, sure. So not only did I have extra set of hands that made it work easier and, and get it done, I got to hang out with my son for six hours or five hours, however long it was, and work with him and talk to him. And so this concept, I changed the way I think. I changed the way I thought, which is the practical application. It was something that I did. I could have been like the Pharisees and said, well, you know what? Maybe that lady's a sinner. Maybe she did something to deserve that her legs... I, here I am. I'm a preacher, and I work, and I give to the poor, and I'm a good tipper. And, I mean, I could have said all these things in my head and been like the Pharisees said, look at me, God. Why am I being punished by this snow... But I, that would have been... A sinful reaction. So I had the choice to recognize how blessed I am in this life and how fortunate I am in this life and not focus on the negative. That's why I'm saying practical application because I believe in my heart of hearts that we can change the direction of our lives by the way we think, by how we recognize who God is and start looking around and going, wow, we have it pretty good. And so when I look at these Beatitudes, and I recognize that according to the Scriptures, it is the Holy Spirit that guides us, and that encourages us, and that helps us to make that conscious decision, and that effort to fulfill the Beatitudes, which he says, ultimately, when you fulfill these Beatitudes, all of them will lead to a more joyous and happy life. Is that making sense? Good. I think that being happy is a choice. I think it's a choice. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 12, Solomon says, I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live. Be happy. Just be happy. Well, what about this and that? Be happy. 
That's what Solomon said, the wisest man who ever lived. I believe it's a choice and a free will because we are not vehicles and we're not robots. Like a vehicle has an intelligent designer and a vehicle, a truck, you, 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 an intelligent designer builds this truck and if you put fuel in it and, and you maintain it and you go in there and you start the truck, it's going to start, but it's not going to start on itself. It 100% relies on the creator, the inventor, the developer of that vehicle to turn the ignition, to push the button, or to push their auto start. It relies on the creator to do that, where I think on the other side, we are not robots. We are robots. We have a conscious. We have a, a, a spirit. We have something that can choose whether or not we're going to let Christ lead us into this truth, or we can choose to say, no, I don't want to be what Christ wants me to be, so I'm going to fight it and I'm going to resist it as much as humanly possible so that I, I don't experience that blessedness that we see in the Scriptures, that we see in Matthew chapter 5. That may sound like it's up to us, and I'm going to tell you, I think a lot of it is up to us. I think it's up to our pers perspective. I think it's up to how we look at life and how we look at our position in life. And I also believe that when God gives us the Holy Spirit, God is the one that's saying, let me show you how to do this. Let me guide you into truth. Let me guide you into happiness. Let me guide you into blessedness. Because my natural reaction to a lot of these things in Matthew 5 from the spirit side of my fleshly side is saying, don't do that. That's, that's, that's opposite of what the world's going to teach me to do. But the scriptures say, do these things. And so when I look at Matthew chapter 5, I see, it, I see God saying, here, I've, I've got some recommendations for you. And, and you are my disciples, so I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to guide you and to help you. Just like I was on the way and Grant was driving this morning, and I think it's the first time I've ever ridden with Grant where I was reading the entire time and not looking around to make sure we weren't getting hit by a car. I mean, I was focused on the Word, and I started to think about this, and it's like, it's, it's the same as the, the kings that came, and he says, we have come here to worship the King of the Jews. Well, how did they know where Jesus was? How'd they know? Come on, wake up. How'd they know? The star. Ryan said they follow the star. That's right. God placed a star in the sky to guide them to come to the Messiah. That's what he did. He was leading them. He was guiding them. He was bringing them along, which I see is the same thing in Scripture as God saying, here, do these things, but the king still made the say, okay, I'm choosing to find the king of the Jews. I'm looking forward to him, so I'm going to see that star, and with the guidance of God, I'm going to go and find the one who has been born the king of the Jews. So when I look in Matthew chapter 5 and it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed meaning happy, fort uh, happy fortunate, well-off, or fulfilled. I'm going to read from a, a commentary that I've been really reading a lot as I uh, read the scriptures and I study them and then I, and I go, okay, what is this other person's perspective on this? What do the Greek words mean? What does the Hebrew mean? And all these things, and I think it's powerful. So I, 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 wrote, it up, I wrote it down. I want to read it to you. So I'm not going to look up and talk to you. I'm going to read this. It says, as we have them, talking about the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, um, 5 through 12, 5 through 10, 5, or 3 through 10, 3 through 12. As we have them, the Beatitudes are in Greek, 
And the word that is used for poor is the word tochos in the Greek. In the Greek, there are two words for poor. There is the word penis, which describes a man who has to work for his living. It is defined by the Greeks as describing the man who is autodiakonos, that is, the man who serves his own needs with his own hands. Penis describes the working man, the man who has nothing. Uh, how do you say it? Sur superfluous? Is that right? Superfluous. Okay. Superfluous. The man who is not rich, but who is not destitute either. But as we have seen, it is not penis that is used in this beatitude. It is tochos, the P is silent, which describes absolute and object poverty. It is connected with the root tosain, which means to crouch or to cower, and it describes the poverty which is beaten to its knees. As it has been said, penis describes the man who has nothing superfluous. Tochos describes the man who has nothing at all. So this beatitude becomes even more surprising. Blessed is the man who is abjectly and completely poverty-stricken. Blessed is the man who is absolutely destitute. As we have seen, the Beatitudes were not originally spoken in Greek, but in Aramaic. Now the Jews had a special way of using the word poor. In Hebrew, the word is anai or ebwon. I think that's how you said it, ebyon. These words in Hebrew underwent a four-stage development of meaning. We're talking about blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They begin by meaning simply poor. They then went on to mean because poor, therefore having no influence or power or help or prestige. Then they went on to mean because having no influence, therefore downtrodden and oppressed by men. Finally, they came to describe the poor man who, because he had no earthly resources whatsoever, put his whole trust in God. So the Hebrew word poor was used to describe the humble and the helpless man who put his whole trust in God. It is thus that the psalmist uses the word when he writes the word poor or needy. I've got, for those of you that grabbed your sheet out there with the scriptures, uh, there's seven, psalm, uh, seven psalms here that says, but God will never forget the needy, the hope of the afflicted will never perish. The poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and the needy from him who robs him. Got to stop for a second. I just had this thought. When I'm saying poor and needy, I want you to remember, blessed are the poor in spirit. Not talking about don't have money, okay? He's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Your flock found a dwelling in it. Your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. In these cases, the poor man is the humble, helpless man who has to put his trust in God. Let us now take the two sides. I'm still reading the commentary. Let us now take the two sides, the Greek and the Aramaic, and put them together. Tochos describes the man who is absolutely destitute, the man who has nothing at all. Anai and Ebwan describe the poor and humble and helpless man who has put his whole trust in God. 
Therefore, blessed are the poor in spirit means this. Blessed is the man who has realized his own utter helplessness and who has put his whole trust in God. Blessed is the man who has realized, referring to mankind, who has realized his own utter helplessness and who has put his whole trust in God. I can rabbit trail 15 different directions, guys. I mean, do you love money or do you love God? You'll learn to love the one and hate the other. Do you love pleasure or do you love God? Because you're going to learn to love the one and hate the other. This this idea in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, that says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is this idea that until you realize that without God, without God, you're missing something. I mean, you're missing something. If you don't recognize that without Him completely, and you not putting your entire trust in God, everything else, it, it, it just, it doesn't work. It, it doesn't work. You want to be truly happy. You want to be truly filled. You want to be truly abundant. I'm talking in spirit, not money, okay? You want to be truly happy. You need to recognize you cannot do it with anything else but God. That's what he's saying here. (laughs) You realize your own utter helplessness. I tried to do it. We talk about this in our men's group every Wednesday. We try to do it through our own achievements and our own efforts and our own work and our own pleasures and God's going that's not gonna work it's not gonna work you have to have me fully to be fully fulfilled there are two powerful emotions that motivate people two powerful emotions that motivate people inspiration and desperation inspiration and desperation. That word desperate, the origin goes back to 1400 desperat, and it means despairing, hopeless, from the Latin desperatus, which means given up, despaired of, the past participle of desperar, to despair, to lose all hope, without hope. Inspiration and desperation. And I looked at some stories in the scriptures, and, and, I, and I, I put those on our notes as well, but there are, there are four stories I want to look at uh, with desperation, not inspiration, which, which led to inspiration, but this desperation mindset is first found in 1 Kings chapter 19. And you look at the story when God delivered Elijah from Jezebel. Now, Elijah previously had killed the, the, the Baals, and in 1 Kings 19, verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Elijah, the prophet of God, kills the Baals, kills the false gods with the sword, or the prophets, sorry, he had killed the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods, the false gods, do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servants there. 
But he, went, he himself went, I'm in verse 4, but he himself, talking about Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die. So Elijah goes and sits down under a broom tree because Jezebel is saying, you're going to die. So he's fearful. He's fearful of this, this, this person, this woman, and he says, I am no better than my, it says, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. Take my life from me. I am no better than my father's. And he laid down and slept under a broom tree. This, this passage, if you, if you think about it, this passage shows the star in the east. This shows the star. This shows the kings being led by God. That we can't do it on our own. That we need God in order to be truly happy. I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. You can't do it on your own. I've got to give you food and water. Because the journey is too great for you to make it on your own. And so God provided the stone, He provided the bread, He provided the water, and He arose and He ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Oreb, the mount of God. So here He was ready to say, Lord, take my life. Just, just take it. I'm done. And God says, going to deliver you. I'm going to give you the food. I am the bread of life. I'm going to give you the food. I'm going to give you the water. I'm going to help you through this. Elijah called out and God delivered. The story of Jonah. You guys know the story of Jonah? Go to Jonah. Who here knows where Jonah is? This is a tough one because it's in the, it's in those, tucked in those little books. Go to the last major prophet of Daniel and then go about three books later. Hosea, Joel, Amos, maybe four books later. Obadiah, five books later. So six books, Jonah. In Jonah chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son, the son of Amittai. Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Everybody knows the story of Jonah. Jonah goes onto the ship. The ship starts rocking. Everybody says, everybody pray to their God and see if we can calm the storm. So everybody prays to their God, but Jonah, who's running away from God, he goes and hides down in the bottom of the ship, and they come down and says, hey, Jonah, pray to your God, not God, but pray to your God, it's all little g, pray to your God and see if they can calm it. And then he doesn't, and they, they cast lots, and they find out it's him, and they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. In verse 12, he said to them, pick me up, and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come, tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah. Jonah says, kill me. Kill me. I'm running from God. It's not working out. I'm, we're, I'm, I'm causing problems for you guys. Just throw me into the sea and get my life over with. I am at 
the bottom of the barrel. That's where Jonah's at right now. So he, they throw him into the water, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. In verse, chapter 2, verse 1, this is the result. This is God working for Jonah here, with Jonah, to give him that star. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. He had been spared. His life had been spared. And Jonah said, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. I was at the lowest point, just like Elijah in my life, Jonah in my life. I was at my lowest point. I I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. Put this in practical application terms. Have you ever felt like it was just hell on earth? You don't have to raise your hand, but I will. I've been at the bottom of Sheol, where I had nowhere to go but up. And the only thing I could do was do what Jonah did and cry out in my distress, and it says, and he answered me. Jonah says, God answered me. And he goes on in verse 7, he says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. Listen to that. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. It got to a point where they were so low in either self-worth, self-esteem, self-value, what my job is on earth, and does God care about me? And they tried everything else. He was running from God. Who's ran from God? Go ahead and raise your hand, you liars. <laughs> we run from God and God, and finally you hit a place where you go, oh, I can't do this anymore. And you call out and you say, God, help me. And what does he do? Puts a star in the sky. That's what he does. But you cannot get to that point until you realize you are utterly helpless without God. You can't get to that place of pure joy and blessedness without really recognizing He is the answer. We try everything. Humans try everything. But until you recognize He's the answer, you're just going to fall in the same hole over and over again. There's a really powerful passage in Luke and we've read about this woman with the Pharisees in Luke chapter 7. And this is, you know, we can, every one of these stories in the Old Testament applies because the physical is spiritual. And these physical stories in the Old Testament have a spiritual application to us in the New Covenant. But in Luke chapter 7, verse uh, uh, 36, it says, One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, um, to eat. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at a table. So I want you to picture, I want you to picture Jesus reclining at a table with this Pharisee. And he's eating with this Pharisee. Okay? Think about it. It says he went into the Pharisee's house. I don't think it was a backyard barbecue. I don't think it was outside of the house because it says that he went into the Pharisee's house. This is very important. 
It's important because what we're going to see happens next in the attitude in, in, in which the person it happened to, where she was at. They went into the Pharisee's house, they reclined at a table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. We can probably imagine what she did for a living. I'm guessing she didn't sell purple cloth. I'm guessing she didn't make handmade baskets. I'm guessing she was not the proverbial 31 wife. It said she was a sinner, a woman of the city. And when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of anointment. And standing behind him, was she invited? Did she just, think about it, she just walked into this Pharisee's house, and there's Jesus reclining at this at, at meal, and she's standing behind him and she starts crying. She, would, she didn't care who was around her. She didn't care that she walked by these people and they're looking at her and squirting. She had hit a place of such low depth. She says, it doesn't matter to me who's around. What matters to me is that Jesus is reclining at a table and I need to see him. And so she goes and she, she anoints him and she, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Of course, the Pharisee was thinking to himself, this man were a real prophet, he would have known that who and what this woman is, what sort of woman she is, she is touching him and she's a sinner. And Jesus answered to the Pharisee, Simon, not Simon Peter, but Simon, I have something to say to you. And he says, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50 when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Turning to the woman, he said, you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water. She's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. I'm going to go as far as to say she was a prostitute. Or she was a very promiscuous woman. And she was probably had reached the bottom of her life. She had reached a point where she says, I am trash. I am worthless. I am so broken in spirit. This is my last resort. This is it. I heard Jesus is at this Pharisee's house, and I know the minute I walk in there, they're going to look at me, and they're going to judge me, and they're going to trash me, and they're going to talk bad about me, and they're going to have evil thoughts, and I don't care. I am so low, the only one that can help me is Jesus. And guess who delivered her? Jesus did. I mean, that's like the, one of the coolest stories in the New Testament. They're the lowest as possible, and Jesus said, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. 
The last one I look at is the prodigal son. We know this story by, I mean, just by memory, we can, we can tell the story as Luke chapter 15, the, the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son, and he gets all of this, his inheritance, and he goes and he spends it on things he shouldn't spend it on, and he's living the high life. He thinks it's the high life. If it was really the high life, would he have ended up where he did? No. He's living the high life according to the world standards. And then he realizes when the high life runs out, and he's in this, the, the pig pod, and he's eating what the pigs are eating, and he realizes even my dad's servants are better than, eating better than this. So what does he do? He is at the lowest point of his life. He was the son of a king, he went to his, theoretically, he went to his father and he says, give me my inheritance. He gets his inheritance. He goes and tries it out somewhere else. It doesn't work. He gets lower and lower. He went from the life of the party. Everybody came to hang out with him. He had all the money and the women. He had everything that he thought was good in the world. And he hit the rock bottom. And he realized, I need to go back to my dad. And so that's what he did. And the best part of that story, in my opinion, is when he turned and he started walking back. You guys have heard me preach this before. When he's walking back, his father ran to meet him. He didn't stand there with folded arms, bouncing his foot up and down, saying, you worthless son of mine, I knew you'd be back. No, what did he do? He ran to him and he hugged him and he kissed him and he threw a party because what was lost is now found. That's the beauty of when we get to the bottom and we look at God. God is saying, come home. I want you home. I need you home. I'm going to give you a star in the east. So when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, that means blessed is the man who realizes his own utter helplessness and who has put his whole trust in God. My father is where I'm going back because that's where true happiness is. Amen, brother. And we all, we struggle, we've struggled. Every one of us at some point has walked our own path. Every one of us. Desperation led to a spirit of true brokenness which led to repentance which leads to Jesus and a happy and fulfilled life. Desperation led to a spirit of true brokenness which led to repentance which led to Jesus and a happy and fulfilled life. I wrote part of my message here is uh, my story. Some of you guys heard my story, some more in depth than others. Um, I would have a hard time preaching this message, a harder time preaching this message, if I had never been in the pig pots. I would have a harder time doing it. But I don't need to get into a bunch of details. But I've been there. And I would have a hard time preaching it because I struggle. I, I, would, I would take more credence in someone who has been on both sides of the fence, just like I would, no one, someone's never been married, never been married, and they're giving me marriage advice. Eh, you've never sat across the couch from a wife who's really mad at you. You've seen it before, or you've read about it, but you've never experienced it. You've never felt it. You don't know it. You don't know what it's like. It's like the you know taking war advice from someone that's never been in the trenches, but they memorized 
you know, War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. They memorized the book, but they've never, they've never held a sword. They've never fought. They've never seen blood spilled. These stories of these people, brothers and sisters, man, when you look at, when you look at Elijah and you look at, you look at the woman and you, and you look at the prodigal son, you look at Jonah, I mean, these, these characters in the Bible, people that lived, hit rock bottom. And every single one of them was delivered by Jesus. Everyone was delivered by God because they hit rock bottom and they said, well, I got one choice. Nothing else has worked. We see that in Ecclesiastes. We see Solomon. Solomon apparently was given wisdom by God that was no one will ever have more wisdom than you. No one ever has had more wisdom than you and no one ever will have more wisdom than you. And so Solomon says, well, I've got all this wisdom. Give me a wise and discerning heart to govern your people. And God says, because you asked for that, not riches or wealth, I'm going to give you everything. So Solomon had it all from a worldly perspective. And he gets to the end of his life, and he says, For all that's been heard, this is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Until you recognize that the only true avenue to genuine happiness is God, going to struggle. Going to struggle. That may sound harsh, but it's real. I'm going to finish with this. I find it interesting. Go to, everybody go to Matthew chapter 5 if you have a Bible or on your phone, whatever. Matthew chapter 5. You've got it. Verse 1. Seeing the crowds. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Lest are you and others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. I find it very apropos that the first beatitude is summarized by blessed is the man who realizes his own utter helplessness and who has put his whole trust in God. Every single message after this one is about being a servant of God, being humbled by God, being humbled by our failures, by our faults, by our circumstances. Every single one after this, blessed are they, blessed are they, blessed are they, blessed are they, the teachings of the salt and the earth and the light on a hill and judging and every oathing and everything in the Sermon on the Mount begins with you better recognize if you want to be happy, you better rely on God fully. Not a little bit, but fully. So if you want happiness, truly want joy, 
this preacher up here believes this is the way to get it. That's what I believe. And brothers and sisters, I have been on both sides of the fence. I am 100% confident. Not 95, not 98. I am 100% confident that there are several people in church this morning that are struggling. I know it. No doubt in my mind. They're struggling with the concept of giving their life fully to God. They're struggling with the concept of, I'm unhappy. They're struggling with the concept that God is in charge of my life. He's not in charge of my life, and I'm trying it, and I'm doing all these other things, and it's just not working. I, I know it. It doesn't have to be this hard. It really doesn't. It doesn't mean we're not going to have bumps in the road. Don't hear me. I'm not Pollyanna, guys, okay? Life has its struggles. It always will. But if you feel like you're at the bottom, in my opinion, it's a good place to be. Because then we can go, okay, I've, I've explored everything. I've explored everything else, and it's not working. So I'm going to look at the Word. Say, what does God want? If you want to talk about that today, you guys have my number. You can get my number if you don't want to talk about it here at church. I'd love to sit and visit with you about it. God bless you guys. Thanks for listening uh, to the message. Who has communion this morning? Who? Nobody? Oh, Ephraim. Sorry, I didn't see you back there.